und willkommen nach or something. I don't really speak German, but hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? This is a special episode looking at maintainers and what their lives are like and how they maintain stuff. This is part of a monthly maintainer month going on at GitHub, which is pretty cool. GitHub is one of the places where maintainers hang out, not the only place, but it's definitely a place where we have cool people doing cool stuff. One of those cool people is Marie Kochzik. I hope I did that right. Marie is a maintainer and developer who works on open source cool stuff in Berlin, where she is from and lives. And we're very excited to talk to her today about her experience of open source. Marie, how are you? Thank you very much for having me. Perfect name, pronunciation. Thanks a lot. I'm doing very well. Thank you for that. I try hard, but German is sehr schwer. So let's talk a bit about your history in open source. Maybe the best entryway is what do you maintain now? Yes, I am one of the maintainers of Drip. Drip is a period tracking app which allows you to track your menstrual cycle and fertility. And it is open source. It was open source from the beginning. It is a non-commercial app and we try to be extra extra careful about data security. We try to base the app on science, on scientific research, and we aim to offer a gender-neutral app in language and design. That is not what I expected, but I love it. That is awesome. Okay, how did you end up working on this particular project? So I am a sociologist. I studied Latin American studies with a focus on sociology. And at the end of my master's degree, I was looking for a topic to write my master's thesis on. And I wanted to find a good topic that kind of looks at intersections of sexual health and technology and feminism. And at the time, period apps were already kind of a hot topic discussed from different angles. And I wanted to talk to users and find out why they would use a peer tracking app and what would be the benefits for a user from the user perspective. And because at that time I had a feeling that many people were talking about why people are stupid to use such apps or why people would feel super empowered when using these apps. So I felt like, okay, but let's talk to the users and let's see what they have to say. And after a while, I got into coding and I started to be more and more interested in learning software development. And then after a few months, the idea came up to build an own, like a new peer tracking app, which would kind of benefit from the learnings from my research before. How large is the community working on this app and how many users use it? So we started as a small team of three. And in the meantime, there are three other people that joined the team. So currently, because other people have paused their contributions and are working on other cool projects, and currently we're a team of four people who are working on the project from, I'd say, like once a month at least. So they're like actively contributing, actively maintaining. And I'd say who is kind of the community is like hard to say. For me, it's also really cool if people just 
start talking about period tracking apps inspired maybe by Drip to their friends or to their parents, to their kids. So I would say like these people are also kind of in a way part of the community because this has been for me specifically one of the core ambitions to start conversations about period tracking apps and to start conversations about having apps tracking very sensitive data and to basically just form an opinion on that as a user to first of all ask questions about it and get into this role of what do I want from technology? How can the technology support me? How can technology be a loyal companion in my life? I saw on Twitter yesterday, someone who had posted and it was a white male CEO dude. He said, I'm now CEO and I got a PhD and I had six kids over the last five years. How did I do it? Here's one small trick. You know, it's about program management. And someone retweeted this and I forget her name. I would like to have looked it up and I'll put it in the show notes. Retweeted it saying, it was a wife. It's always a wife. That was the secret trick. And I really love that because I love what you share about who is part of the community. It's not just the people using it. It's not just the people making it. It's also the people who talk about it. And the people who support the project along, who normalize talking about periods, for instance. So I really like that framework. Thank you so much. So there's a lot of period tracking apps out there. Besides being open source, is there anything that differentiates Drip versus other things? Yeah, I think it is sadly like kind of a seldom fact that it's an open source period tracking app. There are not that many that are open source. I was also disappointed to see that first I was excited to see that Planned Parenthood from the US, US-based Planned Parenthood, they offered a peer tracking app, which is called Spot On. And I thought, wow, that must be open source, right? <laughs> because it's Planned Parenthood. It's not like a company. And then I found out that it wasn't open source and I didn't really understand why it wouldn't be, but it's still kind of not the default, though it's not even half of the period apps that are open source. The few that are, I love to see them out there. There are a few. There's Oiki also, which is also US-based. There's also Hamdam, which is a period tracking app in Farsi for people who are living in Iran mostly. That is also a really, really cool app. There's also Periodical, which is also developed here in Berlin. And I would say all of these apps are also like an inspiration for us or Drip. What Drip does different is we're trying to combine also this idea of being non-commercial, being aware of data security and offering only local storage. There is no cloud, there is no data sharing happening. And we also want to offer an app which allows you to track your fertility. So you can apply the so-called symptothermal method with the app. And we aim to offer this kind of like clearly gender neutral app so I think this is kind of the combination, this is the mix that makes it. I wouldn't say that Drip is the best for everyone, but also this is kind of the joy that we're not alone. There's other apps who just offer alternatives and may be nicer or maybe like more useful for other users. And that's really cool, having a diversity and having like different apps to choose from. I agree. That's really cool. I love that your local storage. There's already been a lot of talk around period tracking apps being used in the U.S. in an aggressive political way, thanks to recent or future rulings by the Supreme Court, which will affect women's health in this country. So 
That's really great. Thank you for the work that you do. We've talked a lot about the app that we're focused on, but we haven't talked a lot about your experience as a maintainer. Now, you've mentioned that there are four people working on the project. Just to get an idea, like an insight into how it works, can you talk about a recent hurdle that you overcame together or something that you feel like exemplifies how you work on the project? So the biggest hurdle for us is probably to find a dedicated amount of time to work on it together because I have to clearly say the best work we're achieving when we work on stuff collectively, when we get together, review each other's pull requests, when we kind of do it together. And that is always, I guess, the biggest challenge to kind of find time and find Saturdays and Sundays to make it happen. And then, of course, also I think hurdles are to make the decision on what to focus on because there's always a big long list of features that are totally valid. They're totally cool. That would be amazing. But we have to focus on one thing at a time. Otherwise, there's nothing that we can kind of really achieve or release. I think for me also a little bit of the sometimes like the sad aspect of it. I would love to do more releases. I would love to implement more features because I also love to see feedback from users and telling us, requesting us features that they would really like to have. And yeah, we have a limited capacities to work on them. But I think because we're also good friends, we work together really well. We appreciate each other. We approve or pull requests with nice gifts. It's a pleasure to work together. We always also kind of, I guess, appreciate the time we spend together when we're not coding. So I think this is kind of the biggest joy of this work. I love that you love working together. That sounds really great. And you mentioned doing it on Saturdays and Sundays. I'm curious, why do you decide to work on open source with your free time? And what do you do during your main work that maybe gives you the intellectual bandwidth to work on this stuff? Isn't that hard? Yeah, thanks for appreciating this or highlighting this. I am very lucky to work four days a week. I don't work 40 hours, which is really cool. (laughs) And I also work on the same or like similar stack. We also work with React Native over iOS in my company, which is really cool because then I realized, oh my God, Xcode updates also apply to Drip. (laughs) We need to work on that. So sometimes it's really kind of also beneficial to work on updating packages, libraries, and then we also have to do this for Drip. So this is cool. I have to say for me, open source work is also community work. Some people go outside and water the trees of their street or help other people with, I don't know, homework or help in others, other ways contribute to their communities in different ways. And the feedback that we get, the positive, engaging, motivational feedback that we get from users really keeps me going. It shows me that it's useful work, that people really kind of appreciate this and love to see this happening and love to see new features coming in. So I don't work on it every Saturday. I don't work on it every Sunday. And that's why the iOS release also takes the time it takes. But I think it's actually really, really nice to work on something that people find useful. It sounds like you've been able to find something that you value that you're able to work on, which is rare. And that's really excellent. So I'm curious, what advice do you wish people had given you when you first started coding, when you were a sociologist and thinking about, well, coding would help me. What do you wish someone had said to you before to make it easier for them? 
Yes, I think that things can take time. This is advice that I wasn't really aware of. When I started coding, I had this feeling of everything is so fast and technology develops so fast, you almost can't keep up. When I started in 2016, it was already talked about, like Ruby on Rails was already talked about as if it was like a technology that would be kind of become, I don't know, either boring or not interesting or not modern anymore. And here I am still getting paid to work on a Ruby on Rails application. So it's also like, I think very trendy to talk about software development as being out of date or specific tech stacks being too slow. And I think for me, I thought if we don't deliver this app within the next year, it's going to be forgotten. It's not going to be interesting anymore. It's not going to be used in any way. And we started in 2018. Now it's 2022. We're still not done with the iOS release and people are waiting for it. And I'm sure people are going to use it. So this is kind of like the advice to say, take your time if you don't complete the task tomorrow, it's totally fine to complete it next month, maybe even next year. It's ready when it's ready. I like that a lot too. I still use Bash every day. So right there with you on old things are okay too. Where can people contribute? So you can contribute, of course, by looking at the code and seeing the open issues that we have and trying to kind of tackle some of these or comment on them. Also sending us emails and telling us about what they like what they dislike, what they wish would be improved on. But as I said, also a big contribution would also be to start talking about period apps and start talking about privacy online, data sharing practices. But also specifically now, as you mentioned this before, if you live in a country, if you live in a state where, for example, abortion is going to get restricted in the near future, I think it's really important to think about what might change in the future and how this data might be used against your will or against your interests. And maybe now is a good time to reconsider what you're using and to reconsider also what you want from a tech to do for you and what you don't want from a tech to do against your interests. So I think this would be also a really cool contribution to the project, to the idea behind Drip. Thank you so much for that. Listeners, if you'd like to get involved, you can go to gitlab.com slash bloodyhealth slash drip or github.com slash jfr3000 slash drip, which is a mirror of the GitLab repo. Do encourage you to get involved. They have a lot of commits. So it's been going on for a while, as you said, four years, but they're always looking for more people. So thank you so much. Quick edit. After we finished recording, Marie and I said, well, that was a nice podcast. Great. And around two days later, the Supreme Court repealed Roe versus Wade. So I asked Marie to come back on the podcast briefly. Menstruation tracking is incredibly important, as we've already talked about. And it's also something that women should be able to do without fear of being tracked. Well, not just women, anyone who has a uterus. And so I was curious for Marie if she could talk a bit more about whether Drip the application that she works on is the best application to use or one of the best applications to use because it uses local storage and therefore people can't track it. And whether Marie has any advice for people living under repressive regimes that may be interested in looking at your data and using it in ways that you wouldn't want, what should you do with your menstruation trackers? Marie, what do you think? 
Yes, thank you very much for having me again. And first of all, I want to say it's extremely scary to hear the news from the US. And I'm very sad to hear that this has happened. And this is like a huge fight that is lost. And this means it's going to be incredibly dangerous and just like a very potentially like scary situation to become pregnant if you don't want to. And I think Digital technologies can be now also very scary in terms of thinking about what are the digital traces that could indicate that me as a person who is searching for an abortion, how to get it, where to get it, that these digital traces may get into hands of people like law enforcement, police, or anyone who would also maybe want to kind of sue me. I don't know if this is possible in the U.S., but I think in general, this is a whole new discussion that people in the U.S. are having now. And I think it's just starting. And period apps have gotten a lot of attention because there was a lot of discussion going on on Twitter and many people have just suggested to delete period apps. And I think Of course, that's also an option for people who are just scared right now. So I believe if people are using peer tracking apps that are developed by companies that not only store the user data on a device, but by default store user data on the cloud, on servers, in the internet, that companies have access to it. This means that by default, you are not the only one having access to your own data, by the way. I think just in general, it's kind of a strange default setting, but this is how it is. Many apps are doing this for reasons, of course, that may be more of like a commercial interest so that companies can do something with this data, that companies can eventually also sell it to advertisers. So this is kind of the default practice of many period tracking app companies. And now since this new, maybe we can call it threat model, added to the party in a way, there's a whole new fear so that law enforcement may send a legal request to these companies and ask for information that may indicate that somebody wanted or had an abortion. And I think this in general is, as I said, incredibly scary. And this might be a really good time to reconsider your choice of a period app. So I would say we... As Drip team, we have been trying from the beginning to offer an app that does not store any data because it's kind of too much responsibility for us. Why would we kind of take on the responsibility to secure this data, not to leak it, to hand it over to anyone like law enforcement? If they want it, they may force you to hand it over. Then it's not our choice, but we would then have to hand it over. So I think this is also something that companies need to figure out and need to kind of understand, maybe they don't even understand this right now, but in some cases they need to hand it over. If there's data, they need to comply. So this is in our case different. As I said before, we're not the only app that stores data locally, and I'm sure we can add it to the show notes so that people see what their choices are. But yeah, this is one piece of the big puzzle, how to stay safe. If you want to have an abortion and you're living in a state or country where this is not legal. Marie, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this extra advice. Listeners, we will have in the show notes links to other apps that you can use. I would also note that this is important even if you're considering not having an abortion or if you don't think it's in your future. Sometimes there are cases where you 
may need an abortion that you didn't foresee, for example, and having your period data not be tracked and used by possible malefactors is a good thing. So Marie, thank you so much for the good work. And I really appreciate you coming on again. And to everyone in America right now, includes me, stay strong. Let's get through this and see what we can do. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bienvenue and welcome to another podcast in the GitHub Maintainer Month series with Sustain. So this is a short series of podcasts where we're focusing on maintainers of open source, what they do, what their experience is, and how they contribute to the sustainability of their projects. Super excited to talk to our guest today. We have Alain Martin, who is coming to us from San Diego, otherwise known as Helene Martin, probably. Uh, Alain, how are you? Hi, I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure. Can I call you? Of course. Yeah, no problem. We'll say, however, it's very, very bad, even though I lived in Montreal two years. (laughs) Tough language. So it is a tough language, but I really like it. I really like it. But these podcasts always have a tendency to turn into linguist hour. So let us try and avoid that, even though you also have a degree in linguistics. So I need to start another podcast. But before we get to that topic and podcast, let's talk a bit about ODK. So you are the CTO of ODK. Can you tell me what ODK is? So ODK is a platform for offline data collection. It's used around the world by social impact organizations. That's organizations you might know about, like World Health Organization or Red Cross. And the way to think about it is imagine you have to do some kind of census. So figure out who lives where and some property about them. You could use a paper form with a clipboard or you could use ODK and then your data would be already digitized. Another very common use case is some kind of service delivery. So let's say you want to vaccinate many children. You could, again, have a clipboard and keep track of the children that you vaccinated, or you could have an ODK form where you can enter in that data and then it gets sent to a central place. Excellent. Okay, so that sounds very, very useful. It also sounds much larger than your average, say, low-level JavaScript dependency. Can you tell me how many users ODK generally has? If we can think about users as practitioners who may actually interface with it, as opposed to, say, people who just input data. Yes, absolutely. In the world of end-user open source, there aren't a huge number of examples of that, especially aimed at users that are not themselves developers. So practitioners, so we're talking then about people who are building forms, who are designing projects, so, so who are thinking about who are these vaccinators and how are they going to learn to use the mobile devices? They're probably in the hundreds of thousands of those. We have about 14,000 on our user forum. And our experience is that sort of behind every single one of those people, there's another couple hundred who are hiding somewhere and who we don't get to interact with. And then we also have people who are even maybe further away from us, who are like data analysts, who are using the data products that come out of the system. That's really awesome and really cool. I guess the question right off the bat is that you're the CTO of this project, which is wildly popular and that's really awesome. And it has open source code. Can you tell me how you view yourself as a maintainer of that software? What does that mean for you? These days, I do kind of product level thinking. So I'm trying to think about which direction are we steering this ship such that we can bring as many of our users along with us. And also 
make it more approachable to folks who maybe haven't been able to access it because it was slightly too technical for them. So I'm thinking about how all the different pieces that we maintain fit together. I'm thinking about how we resource the different projects that we take on and how we make sure that everything is integrated and communicated in such a way that our users can continue working you know, with the tools and using the functionality that we build. Excellent answer. I really wish there were more product managers in open source or product-driven development thinking about the entire thing. And it's really nice to see that at this level. So you mentioned in an email to me earlier that in the past one and a half years, you've transitioned your governance strategy. Can you talk about what you transitioned to and why? Yeah. So these days we are primarily funded through our software as a service offerings. Previously, we were doing a mix of consulting projects, some grant funding, and really kind of piecing it together. We had been trying for a long time to have a more diverse set of independent contributors. So we had really been looking at, can we get folks who are beneficiaries of the software that we build? So people who have their own software as a service offerings, people who have forked and have added things onto it to kind of become more of a unified body all contribute together. And we had some success doing that, but it was really difficult. Everyone who has kind of something that they were selling on top of ODK had their own view of what it was. So people would be specializing in one particular vertical. So maybe they're only interested in health. And so everything that they were doing was very focused on health or they really want to do really great household surveys. And so they're going to really invest in how that works for teams, but they're going to not think so much about other kinds of projects. And we couldn't really make a coherent story out of it. And I think also we were kind of just getting overwhelmed and burned out and couldn't make decisions. And so little by little, we started letting go of some of that and saying, well, what if we also had a software as a service offering that was a bit more generic, that was true to the roots of the tool and had more freedom in setting our roadmap. So we wouldn't have as many stakeholders that we're trying to pull in different directions. We've evolved that, as I said, about over the last two years. We went from having a technical steering committee that was voting body that was deciding the roadmaps. This was a very collaborative roadmap setting process to making it a little bit more centralized. We still have the same body. It's now called a technical advisory board. They're still looking at the roadmap. They're still providing input on what direction we're going in, but it's more as an advisory body. And overall, And when we like to think about sustainability, that has started to feel a lot more sustainable, both in the sense that we can sustain those of us who are working on it, feel like we have the energy for it. And we have the funding to take on larger projects that go for a longer period of time that are more coherent. I want to dedicate hours and hours and hours to that because that is just... (laughs) It's amazing to to see that evolution from let's have a more diverse user group. Let's figure out how to make all our stakeholders happy. Developer group, not the same. Developer group. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Thank you. And contributors and code contributors and just saying, actually, we don't have the resources for that. But if we were funded in a long term and had our own viable company, it'd be a whole lot easier for us. A lot of projects I feel don't make this step because it's difficult competitively especially if your source code is available already. People can fork it, clone it, make their own company out of it. Can you tell me a bit about whether or not that's happened to you? Yes, absolutely. There are many forks and 
derived products and we've tried to be collaborative and continue to do so. We see lots of value in all these kind of derived systems. They go, as I said before, in different directions that serve particular groups of users really, really well. So we still try to collaborate with all these different groups as much as we can. We think the pie is big enough. And basically what we can do is grow that pie even bigger by making something really solid, something really principled that others can continue to build on. It's an emotional roller coaster. Sometimes, you know, we see something that's looking wildly successful and we look at it and we see, oh, wait, this is our stuff. <laughs> we recognize it. We see this feature that we just added and it just got adopted. Um, cool. Most of the time, it's really neat because, again, we know that it's reaching people that maybe we don't have access to that we can't support very well. Every once in a while, it's a little demoralizing. Like you said, it's hard competitively. We say, oh, well, how are we going to sell our SaaS if everyone is just taking it on? But again, the pie is big enough. People know ODK. It's been around for a very long time. And people have had positive experiences with it in the past. And they tell their friends, really. Some of our biggest champions are people in the field. Some of those hundreds of thousands of field staff who are going house to house, collecting important data, doing important work like vaccinating children. They're some of our best champions. They tell the teams that they're on, hey, this ODK tool can really help us and they help us get access to more users. Can you tell me about your funding model? Where do you get money to keep this work going? It's software as a service. So that's the primary thing. Entirely, 100%. It's not quite there. Uh, We're still available for hire for some features, but we're a lot more choosy about it. So we have the freedom now to say, this is on our roadmap. So yes, absolutely. Let's do this together versus this is not really feeling like it's in scope. So, you know, you're asking, how do we work with people who have forks or who have derived products? Well, sometimes we just refer them. We refer (laughs) customers to them and we say, hey, this looks like a really great fit for this other team that has taken on this work in a different direction. So this is all really awesome. It's really cool to see the direction you've taken with governance. Can you talk to me about how you as the CTO have helped lead that perspective or lead that change? Because you have to be the one who translates how open source works and what the developers think to the rest of the C-suite, unless I'm wrong. Can you talk about Well, well listen, I mean, okay. <laughs> C-suite, maybe it's too big a term. That's okay. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Very small organization. So I know these titles, I think, are... They're silly. You know, but you, yeah, but you know what I mean, right? The people level. who don't understand open source. Well, we're a very technical team. So I lead the technical team, I lead the product, but everyone else is also technical. So that hasn't really been an issue for us. Good. Okay. So this is maintainer month podcast, whatever that means. And I'm just curious if anyone ever wonders, it seems like you do a lot of high level abstract work. Are you still getting in the weeds and writing commits? Does anyone ever say you're not a maintainer or are a maintainer? What does divisiveness look like in the community that you work in? Is there any? You're the first person to ask. Well, so here's the thing. I do write code. I do less. I think it's hard to jump between levels of abstraction. And so I have to be careful. I get obsessed about the details. And so I will go very deep in a particular technical problem. And I don't think it always serves our purposes as well as it could if I am working a little bit higher level. There are maintainers who do very well jumping levels, I think, but it's not everybody. And I think it's a source of burnout. People talk a lot about 
burnout in the maintainer community. And I think part of the reason is that people don't end up having very clear roles and everybody's doing everything all the time and stepping on each other's toes. And so that's part of, I think, the reason that people think of open source as being caustic sometimes as well. We don't know who has the responsibility for what. So everyone is getting in each other's way. And like you said before, often there isn't really a high level vision for what direction things should go in. So it's very chaotic and we end up jumping from kind of crisis to crisis. So we're trying to be in a more deliberate mode. Maybe you could call it a cathedral kind of mode. We're not so much the bazaar right now because we have this mature product that a lot of people depend on and we want to make sure that it's reliable and then it's helpful and then it's evolving for them. We want to resist the urge to blow up the world and start over kind of all the time, which can be happening in open source. Yeah. One of the things you said just made me realize that most of the cathedrals that were built were built upon previously market squares, which were bazaars. They have to start somewhere to extend the metaphor a bit too far. <laughs> I think also I, it's their modes. I really think their modes and then like any given project can switch between them over time. And I hope that at some point, maybe soon, I'll be in a place where maybe I am writing more code because we're in a direction that we know where we're going. And so everybody can roll up their sleeves and say, hey, we're all going to be in there writing code together. Right now, we're trying to plan a pretty big evolution of the tools. And so it makes sense that some of us are thinking higher level for at least some of the time, I think. Back to your question of is that a maintainer? I don't know. I, does it matter? Maybe it does. I do a lot of spec work. I do a lot of communication. A lot of things that I think help the project grow and be available to more folks. I would say it does matter because there have been instances recently in the community of people pointing to other people and saying, you're not a maintainer. You're just doing the talk circuit or you're just mm -hmm. going out and fundraising. And that's not, you're not part of the project. You shouldn't have commit rights. And it's like, well, actually that work is still necessary. I love when you say there are modes. And also it's hard for some people. It is hard. It's hard to be to go from writing code every day and committing every day to saying, okay, we have to take a step back and we have to think a bit more abstract. You don't seem to have burned out from this short conversation. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't tell anything. And so maybe an easier way for me to phrase the question I'm about to ask is, what advice would you give to maintainers who are realizing that they need to go to a higher level of abstraction to grow the projects that they're in? How can they do that elegantly? Because you seem to have done that so far. I think it's really important to realize that there is no one way to do open source. And that's something I've had to come to terms with myself. I grew up watching open source instead of television on Usenet. So I've seen a lot of things happen. And I have had a sense of open source, like from... Cathedral in the Bazaar, for example, or other writings, that was the culture I was kind of in when I was in, in high school. So I got to kind of see yeah. this. And so when I had the opportunity to start being involved in this open source project, I was thinking about those experiences and what that kind of open source looked like. It took me some time to let go of, well, I should be Linus Torvald. <laughs> I'm not. And I'm never going to be. Also, ODK is not the Linux kernel. Every single project has its very own unique needs. Every single individual brings their own unique skills and interests. And over time, I've come to realize that open source 
I think, just means the source is available somewhere. <laughs> and that might be on GitHub, very easily accessible. It might have an official open source license, or it might just be somebody pasted a whole lot of stuff in an HTML file somewhere. I think those are open source. The source is open. A lot of times when people talk about open source, I think they mean the source is open and the source is open. And there are a bunch of contributors from everywhere around the world in this bizarre style development. The code is open source and it has a liberal license that people can commercialize. The code is open and, you know, you, you see what I'm getting. So I think people come in with the sense of open source. And so they have expectations around what is a maintainer and that are very shaped by that. And of course, that's going to look very different if you've looked at the Linux kernel versus if you've looked at discourse forum software, which is very much driven by a single, well, an important vendor that has a SaaS offering. So I think letting go of some of those expectations is really valuable. And I think that can help with, like you said, making those transitions at different times to working at different levels of abstraction. And then it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I really like what you've just shared. I think it's excellent. Open source and is a really excellent way of talking about the extra things that we don't talk about in open source. So that's great. You said you're not looking for code contributors. That's okay. However, if people want to read along and join the ODK community and see how they can get involved, where can they go? I would say we're not actively seeking contributors, but if someone really is going to be able to kind of get immersed in the whole thing and find a place to to contribute where they feel like uh, is a good place, we would be open to that. We have a couple of folks who do contribute. We do have lots of other types of ways to engage. So translations are extremely valuable for end users. We have 60 different languages for our mobile client. And yeah, we could definitely use more. So that's something that anybody with very little context can hop in and help with. You do have to know another language. So that's one thing. Since we are building end user tools, we try to build really great documentation. And we have a lot of little documentation issues that are pretty easy to engage with. They just kind of need to get done. So that's something that we really, really value. Community support is extremely helpful. And really, ultimately, it comes down to if you can use the tools in some way and tell us what's working and what's not working as well, that is the ultimate. We really, really value our users giving us feedback and helping feed into our process as we decide what we work on next. Awesome. Thank you. And where can people follow you on the web if you have a place where you have your thoughts go out? I'm usually behind the shield of ODK. I would really say follow Get ODK on Twitter. And you know, you could follow me also in my journey on GitHub and see the kinds of things that I get involved in and what a kind of high-level glue type of maintainer can be up to. So that is also an interesting place to follow me. I like that. That's app.com slash log natural. And then thank you so much. This has been really excellent. Listeners, if you're interested or if you have any comments or thoughts, please let us know. You can let us know at podcast at sustainoss.org or you can go to our discourse. And then did mention discourse. We also use it too. So discourse.sustainoss.org if you want to jump in and talk about sustainability in the long term. As always, please like us on Apple and Spotify and wherever podcasts are sold. Thank you so much for listening. And Ellen, merci uh, once more. This was really excellent. And I really appreciate the work that you do and the level of competency and maturity that it seems ODK is bringing to the larger ecosystem. I wish more projects were like this. So just thank you so much. Merci à toi.